We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentators Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing announcements by Czech officials who plan to make official visits to Taiwan. Ilan County Magistrate Lin Zermiao calling on President Tsai Ing-wen to visit the Diaoyu Thai Islands and assert Taiwan's sovereignty over the uninhabited rocks in the East China Sea. Taiwan state-building party lawmaker Chen Bo-wei urging the government to take the initiative to enact stricter regulations overseeing Chinese investment here in Taiwan. Five local government heads being given five-star ratings for their performances by a local magazine and the delayed Daja Matsu pilgrimage getting underway as coronavirus restrictions are gradually being relaxed. But we'll begin with residents of Kaohsiung last Saturday voting overwhelmingly to recall Mayor Han Guoyu, making him the first municipality leader in Taiwan's history to have been recalled. The final results of the election showed 939,090 votes or 97.4% ballots cast in favour of Han's removal from office, while 25,000 rather and 51 or a mere 2.6% of voters casting their ballots against Han's recall. Now the number of ballots cast asked in favour of the recall was more than the 892,545 votes that Han received when he was elected Kaohsiung mayor in November of 2018. Now Han presided over his final meeting in City Hall in his capacity as Kaohsiung mayor on Tuesday and City Hall officials applauded him as he entered the meeting room. That same day though Han announced that he had no plans to challenge the results of the recall vote saying that he fully respected the outcome of the ballot. Han left City Hall on Thursday following a farewell concert organised by the city government at which he bowed to his aides and supporters and thanked them for their support during his rather brief time in office. Han also told reporters on the sidelines of that event that he has no plans currently to accept any position or participate in any organisation after he leaves office. Now the KMT is continuing to describe him as an asset to the party despite his being recalled and party officials have said that the KMT will suffer a huge loss if he decides to withdraw from politics. Speculation needless to say is heating up as to who the DPP and the KMT could select to replace Han. Now Vice Premier Chen Chi Mai is being touted as the DPP's possible candidate for the city's by-election and Chen of course lost to Han in 2018's Kaohsiung mayor election by just over 150,000 votes. Meanwhile former New Taipei Mayor Eric Ju is being tipped to run as the KMT's Kaohsiung mayoral election candidate and the Taiwan People's Party is saying that it's seeking to field a candidate or cooperate with the KMT in the by-election election. So Ross, where to begin? Han was recalled. We've got a, obviously we have a new acting mayor who's taking office today and a by-election within three months. Well, democracy works. So despite all the claims about uh, Chinese interference in the 2018 election, uh, and uh, Gavin, we've discussed this so many times in, in the last 18 months, uh, yeah, there there was a lot of online support, some of it from China in 2018. But Han was elected because in that election campaign, especially in the final few months, he brought a little bit more enthusiasm than Chen Chi Mai, who, who's not as uh, an outgoing a personality as, as Han Guoyu. And the DPP ha- had ruled uh, the old Kaohsiung City and, and, and then the amalgamated Kaohsiung City with the old Kaohsiung County uh, for 20 years. So. It's not a surprise that that a 
Han won. You know, the polls have been indicating that. He basically out-hustled Chen Shi Mai at the time. And he lost the presidency. You know, he didn't do very well in that election. So the voters came to change their mind. Um, nationally, they came to change their mind about Han Guoyu. And obviously, the voters in Kaohsiung changed their mind about him as well. Uh, and these reasons have been discussed in the public space. You know, he, he had a, many promises he didn't fulfill. He spent all that time away running for, for president instead of being mayor. So the process worked. Uh, so that's good. And uh, a common question this week is, is it going to uh, cause more recalls to occur, whether for municipal leaders, county executives, mayors, or legislators? Uh, it's possible. Uh, this shows that even in a, a very large by population and relatively large by geographic area, that enough signatures could be collected. The voting could be held uh, transparently. And in fact, voting could be held when there's still some concerns about virus and the ability to keep social distancing while, while you're queuing up uh, to cast your vote. Uh, but again, the, the process worked. Uh, the voters decided they didn't like Han. They went through the, the process, rule of law, and uh, he's out. And Brian, you were there. That's you right. You saw the polling stations with the no queues. That's right. And there are not a lot of queues. Uh, because of the fact that they're close to 2,000 polling stations, there are not actually that many people that need to go to each polling station, at most a few hundred. Um, and it was also, ex- there was extremely heavy rain that day. I was actually very surprised that there was such large turnout, um, around 40%. Um, because of the fact that the rain was so heavy. And I, I thought people might not actually be willing to go out and vote. And this, I think, shows how much the Kaohsiung electorate disapproved of Han and wanted him out of office. And it was probably a mistake for Han to ask his supporters not to vote. Um, that's why it's so skewed that he only had around 2% uh, that were against the recall. You have to remember back in the election campaign when there's all those polls, and, you know, Han, Han asked his, his supporters uh, not, not, not to uh, take the phone call or, or to, that's right, to yeah. say they're supporting exactly. to, to mess with. The, the accuracy of the poll results, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, unfortunate for the Gobi dog, but they seem to come up with some uh, strategies repeatedly that just don't work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Was Brian, the, it was Johnny Jung, the KMT chairman. He blamed the DPP machine and basically online use, basically the use of the interweb to get the message across. Yes. I mean, surely there was nothing to blame there because... The KMT could have done exactly the same. The interweb is free for everybody. Yeah, and so it's interesting to see the KMT making the same accusation against the DPP that it was that was made against the Han campaign that was backed by China and used disinformation and online influencers, saying now that the DPP was rigging the election, uh, that they were not following the rules of a democracy in in using online influence, the shadowy online powers that be to change the the, the, the results of the vote. And so that's that's just something that's quite bizarre. And I think that it points to the way in which the KMT has a claim that it wants to play by the rules of politics. It doesn't want to engage in this partisan mudslinging that will rise above this. Yet, when it comes to the matter such as Hans Recall, now it is doing precisely that. Well, let's let's be accurate here. So I, I, I would not describe the recall process, as I indicated earlier, as rigged. Uh, I think it followed the law and the applicable rules uh, for implementing the, the recalls as far as the, the verification of the signatures, things like that. Uh, Brian, you mentioned 2,000 polling state, nearly 2,000 polling stations. Who set that up? The municipal government of Hangoyu ensured mm-hmm. that there was uh, this very uh, large number of polling stations so it would be convenient for people to, to cast their vote. However, uh, I, I don't think it's accurate to say accusations of a very robust online presence by the DPP is a bizarre accusation. I think that's a factual accusation. 
they're very good at it. They've become uh, uh, even better over time. If you go back to say the 2016 election, which they won, but they, they've improved dramatically. They learned some lessons in, in 2018. But to say that the DPP or its supporters don't have uh, a very well organized, whether and when I say organized, whether it's from Party Central or just uh, outsiders who um, share the party's views and are enthusiastic party supporters and are able to generate enthusiasm online for uh, anti-Guomindang, pro-DPP positions or voting. I, I don't think it's bizarre to, to make that statement. I think that's a factual, accurate uh, observation of the state of play for, for the, inter, the interconnection of the Internet and politics in Taiwan. The DPP and its supporters just have a, a much more robust online presence than the Guomindang does. Um, yeah, and so it's actually very funny because one of the things that Johnny Chang said he would do when he was elected as chair of the KMT is to change that to better the KMT's online internet presence to appeal to young people. And this does not actually seem to have worked out. Um, the videos he has produced has been laughed at, for example, just dressing as Zhuge Liang, the historical Chinese general, and waving a fan and being like, oh, I'm the digital Zhuge Liang. Like, I was just laughed at as, a, as an ad. And it was very bizarre. Um, and I think that's what's interesting is that Han, in 2018, when he won as came uh, as mayor of Kaohsiung, he actually had a very savvy online presence, unlike other KMT candidates. And that just changed radically in 2020 when he really leveraged very hard on traditional, uh, older, uh, very ROC national supporters. There was a change in his public image. There was a change in his focus. And actually, if he had stuck to his 2018 strategy of, of an online presence appealing to young people, I think things might have been a little different from him. But that just did not happen. And this was also the case with the uh, Kaohsiung uh, recall vote. Because he had a personality, one could argue, then. Because poor old Chen Chi-mai went into that election without much of a personality. So That's right. And it's actually interesting that Chen Chi-mai has developed his uh, public persona in the years since. And Han has actually just not kept up his, his public persona in a way. Well, and Brian, I think you're proving my point because if you're saying Chen Chi-mai has, has improved his, his public persona or his online persona, believe me, it's not because he woke up one day and, and got this brilliance about how to do that or he spent a lot of time studying uh, or taking courses on how to do that. Obviously, the DPP has a party headquarters mm -hmm. with a very, very uh, good staff. Uh, they're very good at this kind of thing. And the government agencies as well have improved their, their ability. And these are political appointees or their job is to get out uh, the government's political message. So uh, under the tutelage of, of the, the DPP's very effective online uh, marketing capabilities, then yeah, his, his public image is, is improving. If, if he win, if he is the candidate in the by-election and he wins, I mean, that would be no surprise. I, I mean, the DPP could, uh, at this point, pretty much put anyone on the ballot and they're going to win the, the, the by-election. Yeah, I think so. And precisely just they kept Chen Xi in the news by having him continue in these high-profile positions such as vice premier. And the KMT has not actually just been very good at building up new people such as Han and then maintaining their popularity. And I think the recall vote is a very good indicator of that. Could also be that they simply lack good policies. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll move on from that comment by Ross Feingold there. And this week, two members of the Czech Republic government basically said that they were coming to Taiwan on official visits. Now, Senate President Milos Vistrasil said that he'll be leading a delegation of political business and scientific leaders to Taiwan later this year, while Senator Yiri Drahos of the Czech Republic also this week announced that he plans to visit Taiwan with a group of scientists in October. So, Brian, of course, this Czech Republic and Taiwan 
Taiwan thing has been simmering for some time after the previous head of the Czech Senate, I believe his name was Yaroslav Kubira. He was, of course, meant to come to Taiwan in January of this year, but oh, in February, rather, of this year, but he died in January of a heart attack. And, of course, when he announced that he was coming to Taiwan, I believe the Czech Republic's foreign minister, Thomas Petrocek, voiced his opposition to such a visit. And also Beijing said, if you do this, we're going to take action against Czech businesses. Um, that's right. And so it's actually quite interesting that the Czech Republic is so interested in building ties with Taiwan at this juncture. Uh, previously, for example, there was a discussion of city, uh, sister city relationships between Prague and Taipei. Uh, this had to do with domestic politics in the Czech Republic as well, because the fact is the president of the Czech Republic currently is seen as a pro-China figure. And so I think actually a lot of it, evaluating that the Czech Republic is so interested in building ties with Taiwan, also does have to return to domestic Czech politics, that there's this debate about China, uh, that there's debate between the left and the right political parties uh, domestically. And Taiwan is an issue in which they can articulate some of their grievances. I think also this is a way to position uh, the Czech Republic in terms of global politics, you know, side, signaling who you're going to side with as tensions between the U.S. and China worsen, whether with regards to the trade war, uh, with regards to tensions as aggregated again by COVID-19 and so forth. And so actually building stronger relations with Taiwan is one way to actually signal where your political commitments internationally are. And so I think that's something that maybe a lot of discussion has missed. Um, but there is quite an interesting historical relationship between, I think, the Czech Republic and China in terms of that the current president is pro-China. In the past, the Jan visited the Czech Republic in 1995 and caused a diplomatic incident. And so it's interesting to see how this will be spun, I think, going forward, uh, particularly internationally, how other countries react to this at a time in which Taiwan has been... Uh, received a lot of accolades internationally for its handling of COVID-19, but this is also a vehicle for different countries to signal that they are more willing to align with the Western forces of the U.S. against China. And it's also a European country, Ross. And, of course, Taiwan is hoping to get more leverage with European countries. Uh, I'll defer to your expertise. You kind of being a European, Gavin, since you're, you're from <laughs> a country that... Is in Europe on its way out, or they're only out of their out of the the EU, but but they're still Europeans, according to Prime Minister Johnson. Uh, something that that Brian mentioned you know, deserves a, 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 some more analysis, and, and Brian discussed the, the internal domestic politics of, of the Czech Republic. Now, the the current Senate president, after he came into the role when his predecessor unfortunately passed away earlier this year. Several times, he said, you know, I've been getting these threatening messages from, from the Chinese embassy in, in, in Prague, uh, threatening me of ramifications. If I go to Taiwan, and if they keep threatening me, then I'll go to Taiwan. Uh, as somebody who lives in Taiwan, I, that's not a message I really want to hear. I mean, if he loves Taiwan so much, he thinks Taiwan is a great democracy and he wants the Czech Republic to partner with Taiwan on cultural or scientific or uh, business uh, issues, then you do it. Do it for the sake of the bilateral relationship. I mean, don't just do it because you're looking for some way to spite China. Uh, I, I don't think that's really the kind of friend Taiwan needs. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost like he, the Senate president was saying, well, if China will stop threatening me, then I'll reconsider on going to, oh, oh you're still threatening me? Okay, I'm going to go to Taiwan now. And, okay, I suppose we should we should give him some credit. Uh, but again, I am uh, i don't like the way the messaging came out uh, initially, but he's going to come here and the media and the government, they're going to really slobber all over him and say how wonderful this is. Uh, in fact, I, I saw an article in, in uh, uh, the Central News Agency, um, government-affiliated media here in Taiwan, uh, which 
in one sentence described him as like the second most powerful position in in the Czech constitutional government uh, uh, structure. That that really takes it out of context. Uh, because the the president shares power in in the Czech Republic with the prime minister in some ways it's kind of similar to Taiwan where they both have to sign things for it to become effective they both have some control over the military stuff like that uh and and the lower house of the Czech uh parliament is more powerful than the senate uh so ceremonially he 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 might have some certain powers as the president of the Senate, but to call him like the second most powerful person, yeah, that, that might be correct as a, as a technical matter, the way, the way you might look at it in the, the Constitution. Um, but, but in reality, the prime minister is, is almost as powerful as, as the president or, or probably more powerful than the president's actually the president who's second to the, to the prime minister. And then further down, you, you have uh, you know, speaker of the lower house, uh, president of the upper house. So I, I think we need to calm down a bit and, and not uh, exaggerate the importance of this. They're going to be calling it a breakthrough. Uh, every time someone like this comes, it's a breakthrough. It's a big tuple, right? They'll call it a tuple in Mandarin. They'll say it's a breakthrough. But uh, parliamentarians from Europe, in- including from your country, Gavin, the United Kingdom, regularly visit Taiwan, even if it's not the, the speaker or the president of, of, of the lower chamber or the upper chamber, but parliamentarians visiting Taiwan is not unusual. But apparently, Brian, reports say they'll be jetting to Taiwan on an official Czech Republic aircraft, not a regular plane. Oh, fancy. Um, so, And also, I thought it was quite funny that the immediate reaction from uh, Taiwan's diplomatic representatives in the Czech Republic was to give him a cake. That's the first thing they decided when he announced to, to do this. And a Vakov Havel quote on it as well. That was a pretty ugly cake. It was. It it was. was. <laughs> that wasn't a nice-looking cake, Brian. Yes, it was not a nice-looking <laughs> cake. Well, it, 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 this is all very funny, but that kind of goes back to what I was saying before. So the guy said, like, well, I'll go to Taiwan if China keeps annoying me, but yes, I won't go give me a if cake. you stop. <laughs> and now you're giving it, and now Taiwan, if this is exactly what I was talking about. Like, mm, this absolutely. is not yeah, the absolutely. approach Taiwan should be taking. Like, oh... You're going to come because China was annoying you, so we'll give you a cake. I mean, instead, they should be saying, like, are you, going to bec- are you coming with a bag of cash to buy made-in-Taiwan products? Or buy a cake. True. You can go and buy a cake and buy some product. nice moon cakes, yeah, couldn't you? Yeah, bring really? some more back or the pineapple cakes and there that kind yeah, of thing. That's, that's, a, that's a product. Anyway, the Diaoyu ties were back in the news this week after Elan County Magistrate Lin Zemiao called on President Tsai Ing-wen to take a boat trip with him to the islands to assert Taiwan's sovereignty. And that call came as a city council in Okinawa Prefecture was way it's thinking of changing the name of the Diaoyu Tai Islands to something else, basically related to Ishigaki City, which is in Okinawa Prefecture, which has jurisdiction over the Diaoyutai Islands. Now, in relation to that, the Elan County Council basically also passed a proposal this week to change the name of the Diaoyutais to Tochang Township Diaoyutai, because when Taiwan asserts its claim over the Diaoyutais, apparently they're actually in Tochung Township. So, Brian, the Diaoyutais back in the news, countries asserting their sovereignty over them. Tsai Ing-wen taking a boat trip there. Can you see that anytime soon? 
It's a good question. I think that uh, sometimes the Thai administration does face pressure to defend the territorial claims of the ROC, despite the fact that the Thai administration has an obvious interest in building stronger ties with Japan for the sake of countering China. And so this is something that KMT politicians will attack the DPP on, and, and Ling Zemiao is a KMT politician, and so this is another case in point. Um, I wonder if this will just kind of not register with the public at large. I think the public is focused on other things than asserting territorial claims over the Diarutai Islands. Um, but this can still be an issue diplomatically. Thai is obligated uh, constitutionally to defend these territorial claims, and so it does pose a challenge sometimes. Um, I think that's also what Han meant for, meant to do, for example, by visiting the Stratos Islands uh, late in the recall campaign, just to reaffirm this, to bring this up as an issue again. And I think sometimes the KMT is actually just kind of playing to their base, actually, uh, just riling up their base and stirring up their dissatisfaction with the side administration. Um, but then, you know, when I see that this this claim to, to call it Toqing, Diaotai, it reminds me a lot of how China really refers to Taiwan as, you know, Zhongguo Taiwan or Taiwan China. You just have to re reaffirm that it's part of your territory. And so I just feel it's a kind of uh, endless game that it goes on in this way. No, it's like when people in the Philippines decided they wanted to call um, the sea the, the West Philippine Sea instead <laughs> of other names that had been uh, uh, other names that had been used previously that included the word China. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was a map circulating online that um, uh, on uh, on China it said West Taiwan instead of China. <laughs> yeah, where does this end? <laughs> uh, if if uh, the government really changes the name to uh, Tocheng Diayutai. I, I hope that they have a big budget to print lots of maps in both uh, Chinese characters as well as in English, maybe other languages, uh, Japanese, and uh, circulate these maps, not just in Taiwan, but throughout the world uh, to announce that we've now changed the name to, to Tocheng. Yeah, otherwise, people aren't going to know. People aren't going to care outside Taiwan. So you'd have to do a big PR campaign. There was a plan by the Elan County magistrates to, to take some road signs there. And that's right. And stick so, them on. Yeah, it, it seems like just planting a flag and declaring it part of yourself. But I think there's a lot of this, this history of, of very bizarre attempts to assert sovereignty over the Senkaku slash Yarata Islands. The last uh, mayor of Tokyo, Shintaro Ishimoto, uh, when a panda was born in the Tokyo Zoo, he suggested naming uh, twins. He suggested naming one Sensen and the other Kaku Kaku, just to assert Senkaku as a name versus Yarutai, which is in Chinese. And so there's this long history of this very childish diplomacy, I think. Uh, and also very dangerous, though, because sometimes there, there are these people who, um, in Taiwan or, or Hong Kong. They get really worked up about this issue and they get on a boat and uh, they <laughs> go true. there. Yes. And people have died yes. doing this over the past uh, 25 years. Uh, you know, activists, they get, they get really excited. So there'll be hopefully common sense will prevail and, and nobody will try to, to make these kinds of landing. I mean, Gavin, you, know, you mentioned about road signs and stuff. I mean, who's going to do that? It's very dangerous. Are they going to have the right equipment? And, and frankly, the Japanese would probably chase them away anyway. Well, the Japanese maritime forces would get the water cannon out and do what they always do. But, but that's very dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. Now, the Taiwan State Building Party lawmaker Chen Bo Wei is calling on the government to initiate stricter regulations overseeing Chinese investment here in Taiwan. Now, according to Chen, the measures governing investment permits to the people of the mainland area and other regulations need amending because loopholes in the laws have opened Taiwan up to very high levels of Chinese investment. And speaking to reporters this week, Chen said the government should establish an oversight mechanism for all such investments, whether they're being made by individuals 
companies or organisations. As he says, current measures have failed to detect hidden sources of Chinese investment. Now, Chen is also calling on the government to tougher penalties, make tougher penalties for people who assist Chinese nationals or entities to circumvent investment laws here. Because he says that Chinese, basically overseas Chinese nationals, Hong Kong nationals and even Taiwanese nationals are helping hide the sources of Chinese investments here. So, Ross, Chen Borwei clamped down on Chinese investments because they're basically making loopholes in the laws to invest more in Taiwan. We have to give credit to Chen Borwei because uh, he's really become an expert on keeping himself in the news on, on various issues uh, and specifically anything related to China. So he's, he's really developed, a, uh, I would call it a mastery of doing that. So good on him. Um, you know, he's a first-term legislator. Uh, wants to uh, build up a base of fan support, not just in his constituency, but across Taiwan. He wants to be on uh, TV a lot. Um, He's doing a great job of that. Uh, This issue might be, uh, the one that he's raising, might be a uh, solution in search of a problem. There already are mechanisms to to review uh, Chinese investments. So uh, if a company was trying to set up a new operation in Taiwan, um, you know, there are processes involving uh, Ministry of Economic Affairs agency called the Investment Commission. Um, the Mainland Affairs Council would get involved if, if it uh, involves potentially even Chinese money or Hong Kong money. If you have any suspicion, they'll, they'll involve other agencies, potentially even the National Security Council or National Security Bureau. So you know, the government already has capability to do this. If it's the uh, trading or the purchase trading of, of shares of companies that are listed on the stock market, the Financial Supervisory Commission has, has a, a regulatory role in, in policing uh, the undocumented or violation of applicable rules, uh, use of capital from China. And again, if they had a suspicion to investigate, uh, they would also bring in the other agencies that, it, that I mentioned. Uh, I would say generally the mechanism works. So sometimes when we see something in the news, uh, it might actually be compliant. And, and so the issue is really, it's, it's not that they broke any rules. It's uh, you just don't like the idea of a Hong Kong or Chinese company investing in Taiwan. Okay, fine. You could you could change the rules to, to prohibit that. Uh, but uh, to, to add more rules or, or more government agencies, that, that's probably unnecessary at this stage. And I'll add another point that, uh, and why I said it might be a, a, a solution in search of a problem. Taiwan is not really an attractive investment destination for Chinese companies at, at this point. Uh, Chinese companies are not popular. So if you're in, in uh, some kind of service industry or pretty much any other business, you know, opening your doors, whether you're in a or, Retail, consumer, B2C business or, or, or B2B business, uh, opening your doors, putting up a sign, we're from China, <laughs> we're a big Chinese company, and now we're doing business in Taiwan. Again, there's already a, re- a review mechanism. Uh, there are laws, regulations that have to be complied with, but you're not going to be very popular. And, and uh, Chinese companies generally don't see Taiwan as a very attractive place to, to invest a lot of money. Uh, however, in, in the stock market, uh, if, if you're Chinese capital, you're, you're a, a hedge fund with money from Chinese investors, for example, a hedge fund in Hong Kong, uh, you might see attractive investments in publicly listed companies. If you think TSMC or some other technology company has a good outlook, you might want to buy the shares because you think the shares are going to go up. Uh, and people sometimes mix this issue because because uh, if you own point. 
0.5% of the shares of a publicly listed company. You have no say over the management. Uh, you have no influence over the operations. Uh, but people get really excited. Oh, some Chinese capital is coming to the stock market. And they, they went through the BVI or you know, they're hiding their source. And, and again, the FSC could, could, could investigate this. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it happens. But uh, you know, again, I, the, the negative effects of this are, are questionable. So I, I think China is more about uh, getting himself in the media and, and identifying China as the bad guy. Um, yeah. And so the uh, Taiwan State Building Party, of which Chen is the legislator of, is the party that uh, emerged after the Sun Farmer of the third parties as more, let's say, nationalistic, emphatic uh, on Taiwanese identity and antagonistic towards China. And so it's very aligned with their political stances. Um, what's interesting, I think, is Chen is calling for oversight over Chinese investment. And this has longstanding been a demand of Taiwanese civil society uh, from the Sun Farmer movement and before it, up until now. For example, concerns about media investment in the media industry in, in Taiwan or confess, uh, concerns about investment in the service sector industry, which is what provoked Sun Farmer movement, a trade agreement regarding the service sector industry. Um, but I think a lot of it actually goes back to distrust of existing institutions that they might be unduly influenced by uh, the Pan Blue Camp if, let's say, the KMT does come to power again, or that uh, that there are networks within the government going back to, let's say, the party state, which have not been broken and which actually are still more uh, friendly towards China in a way that uh, a party such as the Taiwan State Building Party would find uncomfortable. Um, it's interesting, for example, just you have the, for example, Party Assets Commission, Wellington, who heads that, he takes a post in the Financial Supervisory Commission, and now he's involved in national security now. The movement of someone like that, a DPP politician like that, is quite interesting. Um, the Taiwan State Building Party and the DPP have a kind of interesting relation right now, in which the Taiwan State Building Party sometimes acts as a more radical voice, you know, Di Dong, literally radical party. Um, so it actually takes a more radical stance, but actually it is voicing what the DPP itself wants. They do have a collaborative relationship in this way. And so I think it's also interesting, is it actually just Chen saying this, or does he actually, is the DPP, uh, is there some collaborative relationship there? They want him to voice this, to be the kind of radical party that voices this, and they can kind of take a more moderate step uh, and and just kind of say, okay, well, we're bipartisan, but yes, what you say, say it sounds reasonable, so we'll do this. And that's actually part, of, that's even the party philosophy that they decided to be a party which says the more radical thing so the DPP can take action. It's actually the theory they developed, the radical flanking theory. But of course, Chen Borway, we were talking about recalls earlier this week. A group came out and said they're going to recall <laughs> Chen Borway. Um, that's right. And so after the Han recall, uh, now there's calls to recall basically anybody that was opposed to Han. And Chen Borway is a politician that actually became well-known virally online in the internet for his videos criticizing Han. And so there's calls for recalls against him, Wang Hao of the DPP, uh, Huang Jie of the MPP, and so forth. And Ross, I mean, Brian there was, was, was saying sort of that the DPP are letting Chen Bowei say things and they can stand back and go, oh, that wasn't us, that was him. Yeah, it works for them. Right? <laughs> 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 Low effort from the part of the DPP, uh, whether at party headquarters, legislators, or, or, or the executive branch of government, and you have this politician making making these statements. So, to use my phrase again, I apologize for being repetitive. You know, we have a, a solution in search of a problem, but it might make for for good politics to have even more regulations laid on. On, on top of the existing body of, of laws and regulations governing Chinese investment. And ultimately, if, if you want to get to a point where, where you, you simply want to say no Chinese capital at all, no, no matter how uh, 
and people are going to criticize me for saying this, no matter how legitimate. So if you, I mean, if you have a, a Hong Kong company in the logistics business where some of the shareholders are Chinese state linked companies and you say, nope, we're, we're not going to let uh, the companies like that operate in Taiwan anymore because uh, even though they just deliver goods and, you know, they're not they're not like hacking into our computer networks. They're not they're not up to no good. No evidence of that. But simply because uh, they're they're major shareholders or one among the major shareholders is, is linked to the, the Chinese state. You know, we're just going to say no. Um, but then you, you have to take it to its logical conclusion, Gavin. You have to say, uh, well, we can't let the Chinese airlines fly here because they're controlled by the state. Oh, maybe we shouldn't let Zhonghua Telecom connect phone calls or, you know, have some kind of uh, arrangement or Far Eastern or uh, the, other, the other carriers connect calls with the Chinese state because that's dangerous as well. And it require, might require the, those those Chinese companies to have uh, an office here to interact with. I mean, where, where, where does it end? It ends right now, mate, because we've got to move on. <laughs> time, time. Anyway, five local government heads were given five-star ratings by Global Views Monthly magazine this week for their performance. The annual public satisfaction survey awarded top marks to New Taipei City Mayor Ho Yoi, Tao Yuan Mayor Zhang Wen-san, Shinzu Mayor Lin Zhejian, Pingdong County Magistrate Pan Men An, and Lianchang County Magistrate Liu Tsang-ying. Of course, Lianchang County is Matsu. And these basically local leaders scored high in the fields of education, environment, social order, public safety, transportation, healthcare, tourism, leisure, and the economy and employment. So there, Brian, you saw the list. Any surprises there or just, you know, what you'd expected and who you'd expect the best considered local heads of government to be? Uh, that's right. And I think from this list, you can see who the party heavyweights going forward might be in the future. Uh, for example, Chen Wen-san is popularly touted as possibly being a DPP presidential candidate once Tsai is out of office. And Ho Yoi has actually presented himself quite interestingly that he's managed to avoid the taint of other KMT politicians at present. Uh, for example, not hitching his wagons to Han Goryu. And so this is reflected in his popularity. And as as the mayor of New Taipei City, that is a quite sizable constituency. And so I think it's really interesting to see how his political career goes from here as well. Um, with regards to Matsu, that doesn't really surprise me in terms of the KMT politicians on this list because of how uh, blue Matsu swings. Um, but I think it's interesting then to see who are the future politicians to keep an eye on from this. It, it's, uh, I think, uh, also supportive of what we were discussing earlier in the context of the recall uh, in Kaohsiung that the process works. So to the extent that uh, you know, the voters elected Han in, in what was ultimately a fair election, they removed him in what was also a fair recall uh, process. Uh, these mayors and county executives, they do their job. If they do it well, then they, they get the, the positive response from, from the public, regardless of party, uh, notwithstanding uh, Brian suggesting that the Lianzhang uh, <laughs> County magistrate only gets high marks because everybody there is Guomindang. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe Brian, he, do, he does a good job. And, 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 uh, you know, the, just like uh, Ho Yoi, right? We were, you know, Guomindang being so unpopular in Taiwan right now, but Ho Yoi got good marks as well. And uh, the other DPP uh, municipal leaders who got good marks, uh, they deserve it. The public recognizes that they're doing a good job. And the ones who are bringing up the rear, it's because they're not doing a good job, regardless of party, since most of these are, are local issues. Although in Taiwan, it's it's often difficult to separate these things. Uh, the, the good news, I hope, is 
we don't have a local election until 2022. So uh, hopefully we're not going to be constantly talking about where these people rank because some of them are, are not term limited. So they're going to be running for reelection like Hoyoe. Uh, uh, so hopefully we could put this conversation aside for another year or so, year and a half uh, before we start talking about who's, who's going to get the most votes and re- be reelected in 20, November 2022. If you're interested, in terms of net satisfaction, Hoyoe and New Taipei top the list. Mm. Yeah, so it's quite interesting, actually. I mean, New Taipei is particularly interesting, I think, demographically, um, as as it is a lot of people are commuting from uh, to and from Taipei, and it's growing in terms of population and that kind of thing. And so I think particularly, I mean, the KMT is now searching for uh, popular politicians, particularly after Han's flaming wreck in Kaohsiung. Uh, he was supposed to be the rising star of the KMT, and look how he turned out. And so I think Hoyoe might be the person that they pin a lot of their hopes on. Um, New Seoyuan and Taichung doesn't seem to be doing very well, for example. Um, but also, I'm kind of surprised, for example, Koenja is not on this list. And so that also raises questions, because he is, as the mayor of Taipei, uh, one of the most significant, if not the most significant, local politician in Taiwan. And so that also maybe points to something about where he stands pre- presently. Well, the good news for, for America is that he's term limited. So yes. <laughs> he doesn't need to run for mayor again in November 22. He might be thinking about running for president in January 2024. So. Uh, from one perspective, these rankings don't matter because he's not running for re-election. But yeah, it might matter uh, if he if he runs for president. I, I, I'll add one comment about Ho Yoi. Yes, he was he was the deputy mayor uh, for mm-hmm. a number of years under Julie Lun. But his background yeah. was was as a police officer for for many decades. He rose to the most senior levels of of Taiwan's uh, police agency. Uh, but I think it's interesting that he, he's shown a competency across the range of municipal uh, government issues uh, and not just public safety. You know, you'd expect him to to uh, do well with public safety issues, given his background in the police. Uh, but if he's getting high marks for for uh, education or environment, traffic management, all, all these various issues, um, you know, good on him. Mm. Anyway, before we go this week, the Dajamatsu pilgrimage began on Thursday evening from the Jianlan Temple in Taichung, nearly three months later than originally scheduled due to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, organisers have been adopting special measures to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, and these include wearing masks, and if... Our, our two, my two guests today probably saw the coverage on the television where basically nearly everyone was wearing a face mask yesterday at the opening event. And the Genland Temple is also live streaming the pilgrimage to so people can watch it on the internet. So, Brian, I mean, do you think watching the Matsu pilgrimage procession on the internet would basically be better than being there or not quite as exciting as being there in itself? Well, I think it'd probably be more exciting to be there to see what's going on and try to get under the, the, uh, the, the what do you call it? The, the, yeah. pan, the, the, the thing carrying Matsu. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the word doesn't come to my mind. Um, yeah, and so I think this is also one of those things that religious gatherings have been restricted across the world and, and in the age of streaming, actually a lot is being turned to online, that people are streaming online to do this. Um, and just with crowd distancing measures, I mean, as th- things are relaxing now, but even then there's caution, there's concern that just religious gatherings can be one way for just COVID-19 to slightly spread. And as, as we've seen, just it can, despite the fact that there's been no transmission in Taiwan for about two months, uh, it can actually spread in terms of clusters. And clusters can become extremely large uh, very quickly. I mean, South Korea is actually probably the defining example that their major cluster began from a church gathering, uh, which one person came into contact with thousands of people. And as a result, it spread very quickly. And so I think concern is quite valid here. Uh, you cannot replicate the, the in-person experience for this kind of event. So unlike, uh, say, a weekly religious service, uh, regardless of which, which religion it is, that live streams the service because the, the 
the church or the synagogue or the mosque is not open to people coming in person. Uh, you could pray along at home, and, and people might be familiar with the service anyway. It's a weekly service, uh, similar thing week to week. Uh, this this kind of event, though, this uh, the uh, Maju pilgrimage, uh, the, this is really an in-person event. I mean, you want to get up close, as we were talking. You want to you want to see it up close. You want to touch it. You want oh, to- oh, 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 oh. You can't touch it this year, Ross. They've caught, no, but I'm, I'm saying you know. normally you would want to touch it. You'd want to get up close. You you want to tell people you were there. So you can't really replicate it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's kind of like a halfway, okay, we'll, we'll still have it, but you can't touch it. It's You, you might as well have just only had, had the, the bearers carrying it and, and not had any people, right, <laughs> instead of giving people like the, the, half, the half experience. Uh, but you know, it, it's one more credit to Taiwan and... Taiwan's uh, good record so far in managing the virus situation that th- this event is able to proceed. But of course, Brian, the questions will arise when the big thing carrying Matsu enters Zhanghua, because of course, traditionally, there's been an underpass in Zhanghua, which has been known to be frequented by people who actually want to take the Matsu statue and carry it themselves from the other group. <laughs> yeah, and usually they have times of organized crime, and so we'll see if that happens this year or whether uh, Taiwanese organized crime is so disciplined as to obey social distancing measures from the government or if they'll try to do this all wearing face masks or some, and carrying hand sanitizer or what have you. Um, but yeah, just carrying the plankton around, I mean, that is that is just the personal experience, and people always try to go for that. Um, and it's also interesting, too, that actually the, I think, uh, religious authorities have been so willing to listen to the government this time. Uh, when this first came up with a story in February, were they going to cancel it? Were they going to keep going with it? There was questions, actually, and they took pressure from the government for religious authorities to decide um, to actually cancel it, as well as pressure from the public. And so I think this time around, it's, it's kind of interesting. Well, Ross, would you hmm. be thinking of going on the 340-kilometer procession? Well, uh, you know, the hot, potentially rainy weather <laughs> would be a good reason for me to avoid avoid that and just watch it, watch the the live stream. Um, and uh, joking aside, though, again, you you know, it's just a, it's the same issue. Like, how many people do you want there? Uh, even if you're trying to enforce some kind of social distancing, and, and we seem to be now doing a mix of both. So again, you know, maybe they should have said procession, go ahead, but really, no people. You, you have to stay back. So far that that you're, it, the result would have been that the only people involved would have been the the, the actual staff and, uh, of the event, and it's easy to test them and, and you know, make them wear masks and wash their hands before uh, they get, they they uh, begin doing their their work. Uh, so I'm a, I have to be frank. I'm a little uncomfortable with with something that seems to be a mixture. Like we'll sort of let it go on. We'll sort of have some restrictions because the risk is still there. Anyway, that's all. We'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.